Guys, thanks for thanks for sticking with us these last these last three weeks. Reboot 2.0 session three. Let's. This is going to be our last night. So let's just let's, let me spend a couple of minutes getting a running start and kind of do some rhythms in in review. Rhythms, as we've been talking about, are just ways that we mark time, the way that we pass our days, the way that we order our lives. And one of the things that we've been saying is that you cannot not have rhythms. Now, as I said last week, Ron Machado has rhythm, okay, when he puts on his 80s garb. Okay, there is not a, no question about this. But, but not all of us have rhythm, but all of us employ rhythms in our lives. And, and the question is not do we, it's how are they working for us? Are they spiritually productive? Are they ones that take us deeper into God and deeper into one another. And we, we've kind of reiterated this idea that rhythms are pretty powerful things. And, and as we talked about last week, there, there, there's a very powerful rhythm um, coming up this Monday night. What be it? Okay, yeah, yeah, don't say reruns of Modern Family or whatever, okay? We're talking about the Knowles are playing. Now, there's another rhythm, okay? And this is just to show you how powerful rhythms are. On Tuesday mornings, the elders get together to pray at 6 a.m. So Monday night, Tuesday morning. Are you kind of getting the connection here? And there's tailgating and there's, you know, at best case scenario, you're going to be home by 1.30 by 2. And so we had a collision of rhythms. And so all of our elders just sold their season tickets and said, I'm coming to elder prayer. <laughs> no, Okay. We had to readjust. That, that's the power, that's the power of, of rhythms. And in fact, the rhythms, our cultural rhythms, are, are such that probably unlike any other time in history, they, they so easily lead to disenchantment. Remember, disenchantment is not a denial that God exists. It's just a denial that he's particularly relevant, that he has anything important to say. And even as Christians, it's, it's easy to get into this, to think that, that God is there for us when we're born, when we're saved, and when we die. And, and, but kind of other than that, we're doing our own thing, we're living our own, own life. And that's why we've talk, been talking about this idea, we need spiritual rhythms, we need ways to mark time spiritually, pathways that help us to sort of resync with reality. You know, does your iPhone ever get one of those messages that says, you have not synced in 89 years, okay? Have you gotten one of those? That's our kids, and so we just, you know, hope something bad doesn't happen. But, but that's the way rhythms work for us. They, they resync. They get us back in tune. They're the smelling salts of the Christian faith. And last, last week, we really talked about personal rhythms, private rhythms, individual rhythms. What were, what were some of those that we talked about last week? Some of those personal rhythms, personal spiritual rhythms. Solitude. Solitude. Fasting. Fasting. What now? Giving. Giving. Praying, reading God's word. Um, I would just love to hear, and this is, this, you, have, you have an opportunity, you have my permission to parade your righteousness, okay, here tonight. Does anybody have a particular, like, just like victory, success, thing, a, a work of grace that God may have done this previous week 
based upon last week's discussion with any of these? Did you try anything new? Did you, did you establish any new rhythm? Did you, I don't know, does anybody have anything that like would super duper encourage us or something you learned? Ron, I purchased new morning mercies. he purchased New Morning Mercies <laughs> because no one's heard of that book and we don't have it here. Ron, per- and so with a, with, on your phone, I'm sure. Yeah, on his own, of course, yes. He purchased it. All right, so, yeah, so, so Ron was compelled. Anybody else compelled to do anything like new? Tammy? She hates mornings, okay? I mean, she, okay? But she... Push the, the, the alarm back, sounds like some minutes, 30 more minutes, 30 more minutes that went off earlier than before, but you still hate mornings, but it's been good, right? It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been awesome. Okay, great, great testimony. And so, so this, is, this is what these things are about, is to help us begin to think through them. So if last week was about personal rhythms, we're going to talk tonight, going to end our discussion in these reboot sessions by talking about communal rhythms, okay? The, these are rhythms that aren't just merely personal. Now understand, all rhythms are personal, but these are rhythms that particularly seek to connect us to one another in particularly meaningful ways. And, and, and once again, we have a little video clip that Julie's put together that, that poses that very question to people. What are some of the interpersonal communal rhythms that people employ in their lives. One of the things that Al and I have been trying to do over the summer is to have hospitality evenings where we invite people over that we wouldn't necessarily spend time with to enjoy food and time together. We don't worry about our diets, we don't connect on our phones, we just have time together in fellowship over food and feasting. Being invited to dinner at someone else's house has made me feel very loved um, and has made uh, doing all the ministry that we do really worth all the time and involvement. I've been shown the love and hospitality that didn't depend on the cleanliness of someone's home, the completion of their to-do list, or how convenient it was for them to be present with me. We have a small group in our house weekly, um, and we enjoy having people over outside of that time, too, just to get to know them better. We start by serving in the children's ministry. Church involvement is at the top of my list. We have hosted community group for a number of years, and um, it has been a blessing. We love seeing the kids interacting and playing, and we have uh, we often try to have people into our homes to get to know them better. We attend community group each week. I would have to say the members of my community group have made a big impression on me in the last year. They have listened to me and given me feedback that I have needed as I continue to grow in the Word. Growing up in a very hospitable home where doors were always open and folks were always welcome, hospitality kind of came natural to me, but it wasn't something that I necessarily applied in my everyday life. Last year, when I was diagnosed with brain cancer, the outpouring of hospitality by many of you and the community was incredible. Whether it was people praying for me, a phone call, meals, or people actually coming to the hospital, I learned that showing up is one of the biggest parts of hospitality. 
I would have rather learned the art of hospitality any other way, but just the simple act of prayer, showing up, bringing a meal, it meant everything to us. I've really been trying to invite people over, even if it's just paper plates and hot dogs last minute. We have a house with a swimming pool and a big living room, and we seem to always have people over at our house. So it's great to just enjoy having people around, talking about life and dreams, and that's kind of what our house is like. So you can, you can guess, right? We're going to talk about some hospitality. So let's look up some scripture verses. Romans 12, 13. Who's going to grab that one for us? Okay, Casey, thank you. Hebrews 13, 2. Who's got Hebrews 13, 2? Yes, Danny, thank you. 1 Peter 4, 9. Yep, way in the back, J. Johansson. We are going to flash these texts up there, but when you read them, just stand up so everybody can, can everybody hear, can hear you, and then we can follow along as well. Romans 12, 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice. Share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. In 1 Peter 4. So we, when we talk about hospitality, and, and first of all, let's, let's try to define it. Let's talk about what it is, what it isn't, why God commands us to, to do it, and why this is actually a pretty important rhythm that throughout the history of the church has been very formative, very pivotal, but, but in a lot of ways in our culture and day and time has been lost, but which I maintain can be incredibly powerful, incredible, incredibly powerful. You know, it used to be nothing, you know, in small town USA, like an Arthur Miller play or something where people um, would invite each other over for dinner or hang out. And, and that was just normative. If, if you were to meet a stranger in your neighborhood who just moved in and you asked them to come over for dinner, what, what might, what might kind of response would you receive from them? you're trying to sell me something, right? Like Amway, what, what, are, we, what are we doing? Okay, let's, they kind of look at you a little, little askant. So what is it? And here's a couple of definitions. It's the, it's the generous and gracious, and gracious treatment of guests, okay? The gracious and generous treatment of guests. And we can put a lot of things into, the, into that bucket, whether it's feeding the hungry, quenching the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, visiting the imprisoned. We are, let me put it in some language that we can connect to, we are literally and figuratively opening up our lives, our homes, our wallets, and our time. Okay, let's be honest, that giving up our time is... is is like one of the most precious, valuable things that we have. And that can be, that can be harder sometimes even than money. I was at um, a parent-teacher organizational meeting some years ago, and they were talking about a fundraiser that they wanted to do, and all the parents would come in and help the kids do their thing, and they were going to do some kind of dinner, and, the, and, the, and each couple would be charged $100 
and, and all of us parents are going to help be helpful for putting it on. And there was a guy who raised his hand, and I loved this man because he was just so honest. He was like, can I pay $1,000 so we don't have to do the fundraiser, please? Can I, can I, can I do that? Because our time is a, is, a, is, a precious, is a precious, precious thing. So even thinking about anything that, 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 re, that, that makes a demand upon us, that makes a claim upon us, in some way involves this idea of hospitality. And so I'll, I'll put him on the spot. Um, Yaakov and Aaron Petcher are getting ready, right, Lord willing, to adopt some humans, okay, r- soon. R- how many? Two, okay. And that is literally an, an, a hospitable act at its, most, at its most basic core. Now, the reason we do this, we open up our lives, our homes, our wallets, our, our time, um, for, is a couple of reasons. One, we're clearly commanded to do it. We're clearly commanded to do it. So when we think about the love of neighbor, um, what is Jesus's very famous parable about what it means to love your neighbor? Which parable is it? There's a couple, but what's the most well-known probably? Yeah, the Good Samaritan, there's a man lying down, he's dying, the priest walks by, doesn't want to be ceremonially contaminated, but yet here's this man, he stops, and doesn't just like help him, give him a cup of water, what does he do? Puts him on his horse or mule, he takes him to the inn, he pays his way. I mean, we're talking about like a significant claim, a claim of time. That, that, that's one reason, it's, na- it's neighbor love, neighbor love. But two... This idea of like laying down our lives, giving of our time, giving of our, of our energy um, with nothing expected in return, that kind of sounds like who a little bit? Jesus. That, 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 this is the gospel, okay? And that very famous hymn, and we should have sung it tonight. I forgot to tell, tell Julie. Jesus sought me, what? When a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. I remember I, it was one of these hurricanes where things were canceled and were out of power. I, it was, what was the one a couple of years ago? Yeah, maybe it was this one. But all I know is almost all of Tallahassee was without power. We were without power. But there were these people, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest their armpits, okay, who did not, who still had power. Do you remember these people? They lived out. And I was deathly jealous of them until what? And Andy and Kristen Palmer invited us into their home, okay? And we were, like, sweating, and, like, we hadn't bathed. And, I mean, we were just, like, we were a ragtag bunch of gypsies. And they were, like, come on, just everybody, come on over, your kids, all your stuff, not your pets, but your kids, everything else, come on in. And it was, like, this respite. It was, it was, it was truly rest for our souls. Think about um, what Gabe and Megan Peters were, were talking about up here. You know, Gabe diagnosed with... Um, a brain tumor and couldn't do anything for himself and just the outpouring of support and generosity and hospitality on and on and on. We all know like examples of, of saints who, who, who do this incredibly well. Now, let me, let me explain just for a second, I think what hospitality is not. And if you want a good book on hospitality, um, Rosaria Butterfield's book, uh, is is I have not read it, but it's been it's been it's been deemed outstanding. Has some excellent reviews, but there's a difference in hospitality and entertainment. There's a difference in hospitality and entertainment. Who 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 would want to take a gander here for us and be brave and say, 
Here's, here might be a difference between entertainment and hospitality. What, what would be some of the differences? Somebody help us here. Are you reading a book? Are you reading from? Okay, you're, that, was, that was, okay, if you didn't hear, entertainment is to show off, right, or show up, see and be seen. Hospitality is to serve. Was there something else to that? If not, just make it up. Open up. Yeah, to serve, serve and open up. So if anybody has seen the, the movie Sabrina, the remade version, okay, so the David Larrabee and family, they live out in the Hamptons, and David is kind of like the rich playboy. And um, the, the, the chauffeur's daughter grows up watching him throw magnificent parties at their Hampton estate. I mean, and they are magnificent. There's like the full piece orchestra and there's the dancing and it's all happening and the food and it's just this extravaganza. And a lot of times a great hindrance to us when it comes to hospitality is we think, I can't do that. Okay. I can't do that. That's, that's kind of beyond my capacity and less my house is perfect. And I, I've, I've worked on the yard all week and we worked inside scrubbing and cleaning, then we, 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 we can't do it. And, and again, that's not, that's entertainment. That's not necessarily hospitality. Now, when we think about reasons that it's difficult for us in our particular day and age to establish this rhythm, I think a lot of it boils down to, for us, for a lot of us, our home functions more like a, a castle or more like a fortress than it does like a cottage or a respite, okay, or a community, community center. It's like a lot of times, you know, we're like the all-seeing eye of Mordor, okay, right, on Mount Doom, and we're like, no one gets in and no one gets out, right? When I get home from work, I don't want any neighborhood kids, I hardly want my own kids, but I don't want, I don't want any of them. I want to just, I want to be in that chair. I want to be in that sweet spot. Don't, nobody talk to me. Let's zone out in front of the TV. Let's, let's, because I've had all these demands upon me all day and I need to, I need, I need some me, some I, some, some family time here tonight. When I think a, a, a more appropriate biblical view of our home is, is not Mordor, it's Rivendale, right? You can tell I'm a nerd, right? I, Rivendale. So, so there are the elves there. There's always this quiet respite place for any traveler to come through. You can't find Rivendale, okay? Unless you're being chased by wolves and then somehow you can magically find it. And a lot of times that characterizes, that characterizes us. And, and one of the things that we have to do to, to be, really be faithful in this area is to make a pivot as it relates to the way that we view ourselves and our homes and our families. Okay? And, and, and let's be honest, in our, in our world, in our culture, there are so many demands. There, there, there's, there's an incessant sort of pushing in from technology, and it's hard to be unplugged, and we always feel accessible. And sometimes when we, when we kind of come in um, for the night, so to speak, or on the weekends, or it's just, I don't want to, I don't want to be disturbed. But one of the things that, ha- that we have to do, begin to do is to, is to begin to view the home 
as the locus of ministry that God has given us in our life. Okay, whether it's an apartment, whether it's um, an estate, whether it's a condo, whether it's whatever God has, has blessed or graced you with, do you view that as sort of a, a home base for ministry? Do you view yourself and your family as sort of a generator or an initiator of ministry? So when you're coming out of church on a Sunday and you begin to think about what's our lunch plans, right? What's our lunch plans? And is there, is there an instinct, is there an impulse that, that looks to say, well, who's my neighbor? Who's the stranger? Who's the guest? Who is the, that I can connect with? Because my first year in seminary, I, I moved from God's country, Chattanooga, Knoxville, to Mississippi, okay? And if you're from Mississippi, I love you. I lived there four years. I love the place. But when I moved, I was a single guy. Susan and I were dating, breaking up, dating, breaking up, dating, you know, for about a year. And I, I moved to Jackson, didn't know anybody. I was, I was lonely. I was, I, was, I was depressed. I was really melancholy. I was really isolated. All these other guys in seminary with me were, were married. They had children. I just, it was hard for me to get into the, into the flow. And I really kind of felt like just, just, I was depressed. I was just super duper depressed in, in retrospect. But one of like the saving graces of that year was that when I would go to church on Sunday at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, there was a family, um, uh, the Bradford family, and their son happened to go to seminary with me, and they were from Jackson. They had a home base in Jackson. And, and what they would do every Sunday is they would just sort of scoop up, okay, any, like, wandering, lonely boy like me, just kind of scoop us all up, invite us to their house, um, open up their home. I mean, we would eat. It wasn't like super duper fancy. It was just something like sandwiches or crock pot or whatever. And we would talk about the, talk about the sermon, talk about our lives, talk about um, our families, our backgrounds. And that was incredibly significant and impactful to me. Um, that was a place where literally the family of God was taking care of the family of God and it was, it was incredibly, incredibly meaningful. Okay, so what, is, what does that have to do with rhythms? Guys, one of the, the, the things that we, that we gain when we have a rhythm of hospitality in our lives is an understanding that, that God has put us here as ambassadors. God has put us here as stewards. That this is not our home. That, that we are sort of moving through, and what God has called us to do is to be instruments of, of righteousness, to bring peace, to bring shalom, to show neighborly love. It doesn't mean that every conversation has to sort of terminate in the gospel. Um, hospitality can be done with whether Christian or non-Christian. It can be done with people in the church Without, outside the church, it can be done with strangers or with, or with folks that you, that you know well. I would just be interested to, to hear maybe from a couple of you where you have had significant blessings of hospitality given to you at some point in your life 
that really demonstrated with clarity the, the gospel of grace? Who, who, is, who has been like a beneficiary of hospitality that has been particularly meaningful? Yes, Rachel, stand up and say it loud. <laughs> Yes. Yes. How did you realize it? That is awesome. And any of y'all have real, really have permission to do that at the Johansons, okay, in, in any particular time. Notice that she finished like two pieces of Marsala before she like, oh, yeah, I totally, what am I thinking, all right? That's good. Anybody else have something that's been particularly meaningful in terms of hospitality in your life? Yes, Robert. <laughs> right. <laughs> Steve loves it when six-year-olds play with his car. He loves that. He loves that. <laughs> no, that's that's excellent. You know, some of you. Um, and again, hospitality is going to look differently for, for every one of us, depending on your schedule, your home, your, it, it's, it's, hospitality can be bringing someone a meal, it can be, it can be opening up your home, it can be, it can be sharing something significant that you have, inviting someone along to go with you to something that you are already doing. It can look a hundred different ways, hosting a community group, a lot of you host a community group, that's a massive gift of hospitality to, to the body of Christ. So those are all, all ways to be thinking. What are some creative ways, again, th- this is to kind of spur us one, one other on to love and good deeds. What are some creative ways that some of you have employed hospitality that you feel like, man, that's, this is something that's really worked for us. This is something that God, we think God has really used as a, as a rhythm in our lives. Tammy? And you couldn't tell the difference. They were both so intense in their game playing. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, exactly.
game night. So invite people from the neighborhood, invite Christians, non-Christians, get them all in there. They mix it up on apples to apples and it's on, right? Okay, big time. Guys, one of the things that, that Mike Cosper suggests, and this is, I think this is really cool because I think it recognizes a biblical rhythm that he calls feasting. Um, somebody, look in Leviticus 23, 1 through 2. If somebody could read that for us, Leviticus 23, 1 through, 1 through 2. And then somebody grab, and I'll do Revelation 19. Who, who can do Leviticus for us? 23. Leviticus 23, 1 through 2. God gave, this is an interesting, one of the rhythms that God gave the Israelites involved food and feasting. It was a rhythm that was to mark their lives in, in some pretty substantial ways. And, and, and part, of, part of what's going on here, and there's a, there's a great quote, I, I think it's there on page 132, but it's on your page, there's something about eating and drinking. And I won't read the passage, but Revelation 19, 6 through 10 talks about a feast at the end of time, the wedding feast of the Lamb. I, I, I firmly believe we will eat and drink in heaven, okay? And for all the Baptists, I think you will drink wine that is not diluted at all. Let me just be really clear about it. And you're going to love it. It's going to be great. One of the reasons I think we'll eat and drink because I think heaven is a restoration of Eden. Adam and Eve clearly ate and drank in, in the garden. And, and there's something about eating and drinking that communicates intimacy. How many times is David saying things like, prepare me, prepare a table in the presence of my whom? Enemies. I mean, we're, because enemies, you don't eat dinners, break bread with your enemy. There, there, there's something like, like super familiar about this and feasting in the lives of the, of the Israelites was to remind them that everything they have comes from God. It was to remind them that their lives, it was a way to keep them enchanted, okay, with the world that God had made, that, that, that the sum total of who they were in their history was not bound up in Pharaoh or their slavery or the oppression that they suffered, or the 400 years that they were away from the promised land, their identity was wrapped up in being the people of God. And when they would do these rhythms, these different feasts, whether it was unleavened bread or the Feast of the Booths or what have you, all of it was, was meant, to, meant to establish a rhythm in their lives by which they remembered who they belonged to, who had made them, who created them, um, what were they put on this earth to do? And, and all of this is sort of caught up in this section, which I, I just particularly really enjoyed reading on feasting. And so let's look at the quote Mike Costner has there. He says, most of us don't know how to throw a feast these days. And this is really good. We know how to eat, and we know how to eat far more than we need to eat. That's not feasting, Okay. But we don't know how to feast, how to gather around a table, linger over a meal, cherishing the conversations, flavors, and stories that are shared. 
Now, we all understand time is, is precious, and, and we Americans particularly blow through our meals like nobody's business, right? But a feast is, is something where you are enjoying the feast for the sake of the blessings of the feast. It's, look on your handout. What, what, what is it? We're rejoicing in God's goodness. We're receiving with thanksgiving everything that he has made. It, it, it's interesting that in, in the church in Ephesus, there were actually people going around saying, don't eat that, don't drink that. You're more holy if you observe this day. You're more holy if you, if you abstain from this particular thing. And, and one of my favorite verses, Paul says, nothing is to be rejected if it's, to be, if it's received with thanksgiving. Now understand, we can, we can receive food and make it an idol. Now, I, and I would venture health and food are massive idols in our culture, right? We are either super gluttonous, okay, and we're eating for the sake of eating, and we're going to the Texas de Brazil twice in the same day. That's, that is nothing but a sin, let me tell you, okay? That is nothing but a sin. Or we, or we treat our bodies as if they themselves are God, that, that, that we can perpetuate our lives indefinitely if we only eat the right things, do the right things. But feasting reminds us that both of those things are in error. One, we're not materialist, like the sum total of our parts. Neither are we kind of like Gnostics, that, that, that food, is, is, food is bad, drink is bad, you know, it's only, it's only water and grain for me or, or what have you. It's really, I believe based upon Revelation 19, when we feast, this is an eschatological celebration. In other words, it's pointing us to the day where we will eat and drink for the glory of God at the wedding supper of whom? The lamb. The lamb. I mean, you know, you get that feeling sometimes, like if you're you're, you're like, you're at an FSU game, or you're going to Disney World, or you're on a, an, a magical vacation, or you're on a cruise going through Alaska, or whatever, a drive through the mountains, and you're like, man, I wish this, I wish this moment would never end, right? In heaven, it won't. There'll just be an exponential increase of joy as we enjoy the gifts of God himself that he's given us. And so, so, it's, so one, feasting is not gluttony or hedonism. It's not self-centered debauchery. It's not, as the old school would say, a bender. I've gone on a bender. That's, that's not what feasting is. Feasting is, is enjoying the very presence of God in the presence of other people. So, so what are just like two things, non-negotiable, that you have to have to have a feast? Raise your hand. What, what's a couple, what's one thing you got to have? Food, that was smart, okay? But what's the second thing you got to have, have? People, okay? Don't be shredding on the feast day, right? Don't, don't do that. Don't sh- I mean, you know, th- this isn't for dieting. Look on page 132 and through 33 if you have your book with you. And he, he gives, and I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that some of us try this because we need to expand our imaginations for what it's like to open our homes, to open our lives, to really be in each other's presence. When you think about a feast, we're not talking 15-minute Nathan's hot dog in the microwave, some of you which are still eating from last week, right? We're not talking about that. What are we talking about? Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. 
You know, it's those, it's those magical meals, those magical times. And it doesn't, the, the food doesn't have to necessarily be exquisite. I mean, it can be very simple. He talks about the bowl of buttered noodles for your kids who will undoubtedly complain about this, okay? This is, this is an opportunity to enjoy the good gifts of God, God's creation. And so for a lot of us, I found, I found these particularly helpful. The ground rules of a feast. Okay, so first he says invite the guests. But number one, turn off what? Your phones. And so, um, you know, and all the moms are immediately like, but I've got kids at home and, I'm, you know, all that. Okay, you'll work that out in your own conscience. But, but most of us don't need to be super duper accessible. Somehow in the history of the human race, we survived this, right? I still remember my parents going out to eat. And if the babysitter wanted to get in touch with my parents, guess what they did? They called the restaurant, which was incredibly awkward and disrupting nonetheless. But here, a lot of times it's hard for us to be present because we're not turning off our technology. Okay. Number two, this is great. Do not plan on counting what? No, don't do that, okay? If, if you're going to count calories on the feast, just don't, don't feast, right? Don't, don't do that. Now, remember, this is not gluttony, but it's an opportunity to say to taste and see that the Lord is good. So don't count. He talks about his bowl of butter noodles. Conversations will be driven by joy. This is, this is, really, this is really important. And a lot of times, and this is always sad to me, when we'll go out to eat, and there's a family that's sitting together or um, a parent-child or even a married couple, and they're eating, but they're not what? Saying anything or not talking about anything. And it's not to make a judgment about that particular relationship, but, it, but it's, a, it's a failure to remember what God has given us food for. It's sort of the, the lubricant of relationships and conversation. And so he talks about conversational joy. He says, um, don't talk about your jobs. Don't talk about your bosses. Okay. As pastors, when we get together, guess what we talk about? You, okay? <laughs> we, no, it's like, don't do that, okay? You, the homework. The, no, just what can you celebrate, you know, one of the things that, I remember this, this was uh, uh, many years ago, a number of folks at Four Oaks went on, um, went, on a little, went on a little excursion for a few days away, some couples, and one of the things that we did every meal is that one couple was responsible for generating the questions that everyone would answer at the table that night. Okay, and so maybe one of the questions was, tell us how you fell in love and how you started dating or how you got married or, or, or tell us about like the most significant um, authority figure in your life or who, who was a mentor that was particularly meaningful, you, meaningful to you or it, it could be something like, what's a particularly painful memory that you're really like trying to work through that God, you know, it, it can be a whole host of things. And that was just incredibly, that was an incredible blessing. Um, parents and your kids, if you're looking for something to manage the flow of conversation at your house, okay, you're trying to give that a little bit of structure. Think about ways that, that you can do this. Plan for abundance, lighten up, celebrate, call attention to it. Um, 
make it a rhythm in your life. All right, let's, anybody have any examples of any feasting that they've done recently or not so recently that was particularly meaningful in ways that God might have used it? That didn't involve a cruise, okay? No, it, it, if it was a cruise, it's fine. Yes, Jay. So, did everybody hear Jay? Tom and Becky, you, every Chinese New Year. When is that exactly, Jay? No, I don't want to asking you. <laughs> anyway, Chinese New Year, the Yus invited a bunch of people over, and they feast, right? And you talk and engage. And Now, there, we, there are a couple of feasts that are typically built into our annual calendars. What are they? Thanksgiving, okay. A lot of times, that's as close to feasting as the secular world might come, right? It's, it's right at that time that there's conversation and there's interaction and engagement and something incredibly awkward ha- happens. You know, I mean, there, there, there's that sort of thing. But think about that. So, all right, so the use, anybody else have like a significant memory of feasting? Yeah, Jeannie. Yes. Great, birthday feast. Birthday feast, and we're going to affirm each other. Melissa. Oh, boy. My roommate in college was, or is, Italian from Philly, so we went home to Thanksgiving with him one year, and it was it was an other world experience. I don't even know what to even call it. I mean, first of all, there was ravioli and mushrooms along with the turkey and dressing at the dinner. And then like, it was this feast. And then when it was over, everybody watched WWF pay-per-view wrestling on day. It was really, it was the most, it kind of worked. I don't know. Don't ask me. It it, it, kind of worked. Okay. Let's, that's a home rhythm. Let's talk about a church rhythm for a second. Um, let, let's look at look up at some of these passages. We're going to talk about worship as a rhythm, okay? Worship as a rhythm, and why the rhythm of worship is important. So Ephesians five eighteen through twenty one. Who can grab that for us? Casey okay, again. Colossians three sixteen. Who will do that? Rachel. Um, let, let's start with those two. And stand up and read it if you don't mind. Okay, Colossians three sixteen. Okay, so 
Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, the church in Ephesus. He's giving commands about worship. Now understand that this is, this is, these are not privatized experiences that Paul is encouraging them toward. All of these directives and commands are in the, are in the plural, you, you. So in other words, as you all come together, and clearly he's speaking about the gathering of God's people. That's the, the, reg, the, the regular rhythm uh, of gathering together. When you come together, praise the Lord, exchange, you know, sing and lift up songs, lift up praises. I have a couple other references. We don't have time to read them. First Timothy 2, where Paul spends a whole chapter giving directives about the rhythm of worship. He talks about men and praying and women and this. And 1 Corinthians 14 is a whole exposition on what it means to, to, to come together as the people of God. Now, when you do any sort of study of the New Testament, what you realize is that their perspective on worship, and now I'm, I'm not talking about merely worship scattered, as in we worship God in everything that we do. We honor him with our checkbook. We honor him in the way we eat and the way we treat. And that's worship as well. But now I'm talking specifically about the gathering of God's people together to lift up praises to honor and glorify him. You can tell that, that the Lord's Day worship was such a powerful rhythm in their lives that they changed the day of the Sabbath to accommodate it. Right, so, it, it, so the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, which was the last day of the week. The Lord's Day was Sunday, the first day of the week. And why was it changed to Sunday? That's, 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 when, Jesus, that's when Jesus rose. And, and one of the things that, we, that, that sometimes can happen in my theological camp, okay, which is kind of the Reformed, God-centered camp, is that worship can oftentimes be primarily discussion about about the God-centeredness of, of worship or who is worship for. It's, it's, it's not for you, it's for God. It's, you know, it's, it's, to be, it's to be centered upon him. It's all about him. You don't matter. We're just, and, and, and some of that is, is, is good and true, but we forget, Acts 17, God does not live in a temple made with human hands, okay? You don't have to come... God doesn't have to be worshipped in the frozen food section right here at former Food Lion to be worshipped, right? You understand that. Then why would God call us together? Why would God call us to mark our lives with this one particular spiritual rhythm? Because worship isn't, isn't just for God, although it's not less than that. Worship is for you. It's a rhythm that's to powerfully shape you. Now, all the qualifiers, centered on Christ, centered on God. What we're, what we're referencing here is this idea that when we come together as the people of God, we are telling the gospel story in our worship. And how do we do that? We're, we're praising, we're singing, we're, we're giving, we're bringing ourselves under the word of God, we're coming to the, to the Lord's table we're reenacting sort of the, the gospel story. It's a very powerful, it's supposed to be a very powerful part of our spiritual formation. It's to be a part where we are literally coming together as God's people in renewing our covenant week after week and saying, 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One of the things that Mike Cosper talks about is this idea that worship is actually protest. Now, somebody help us there. What does that mean, worship is protest? You show up in my, in my tie-dye, and my hippie. You know, what, what does that mean, worship as protest? What are we protesting? Okay, the world. We're saying this is not the way things were designed to be. This, is, this, is, this, this world ultimately does not belong to Satan. Um, it's not about the world, the flesh, the devil. Ultimately, we are telling a different story by coming together as the people of God. And what happens over time when God's people fail to keep worship as a rhythm, and this is something we talked about in the first week, the, the weightiness of God is no longer so weighty. God becomes very inconsequential or, or, or distant or, or, even, or even irrelevant. We wonder why, you know, kids raised in evangelical homes seem to, seem to, 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 in many ways, drift very far from the faith, very far from the church. And parents, a lot of times it's because they've just watched us and they know like, well, this rhythm doesn't mean anything particularly to you. It's just a privatized experience that we can sort of sample one out of four or five, six Sundays, um, what have you. But we have to really think about as parents, as a church family, what kind of rhythms are going to bless our children? What kind of rhythms are going to bless our marriages? What kind of rhythms are going to bless our families over the long haul? And a lot of times, and, and guys, I think the, the, the precipitous drop in regular church attendance, even among committed evangelicals, is just, is just another way that, that disenchantment has disguised itself. That, that we have somehow convinced that the way that we're truly going to bless our children or our families is if they have these particular experiences or we go to these particular places or we play these particular sports or they get these particular scholarships or wh- whatever the case is. This is all part of our, our cultural, sociological milieu. But one of the things that we are doing when we're coming together as God's people we, we are, he talks about, wor- he talks about the worship wars, and what were the worship wars? Like, right, contemporary versus traditional, right? He said, no, it's not the worship wars, worship is war. Worship is, is staking, putting our stake in the ground. It's saying that, that here we have this outpost on this side of heaven, and we need one another. We need to order ourselves, orient ourselves under God, and under his rule, and under his word, because otherwise we will just so easily become disenchanted. We, we, the, the, the reality of God will rest very, very lightly upon us. So one of the things that I encourage you towards, and, and I'm going to have to draw this to a close um, here in just a second, but one of the things that he talks about in terms of just ways to to orient our lives liturgically around this is he talks about Christmas, he talks about Easter, okay? So he talks about um, this, and I'll I'll let you guys read this on your own, but he talks about how Christmas with its feast is is its practice of gift giving, the lights and the tinsel that come along with it is meant to be an over-the-top celebration of the generosity and mercy of God. 
while Easter and Lent is meant to be more of a reflection, lament, mourning. And so many times, you know, for us, and this is not a call to, for us to, to be Anglican or Roman Catholic or anything like that, it's just to remind us that there's a reason, there's a reason that the church for the last 2,000 years has ordered itself in particular ways around things like this around the gatherings of God's people. And so as you guys are reading through the book, I encourage you to think about that. Think about, hey, how do we celebrate this at our house? How do we order this in our homes? How do we, those are the kind of things that we really want to be considering as pastors and elders as well. What does it mean to more significantly mark our times as the people of God and to establish a rhythm that's a blessing to us and a, and a blessing to other people. All right, l- let me pause there for a second because that's, I said a lot in about 10 minutes and I don't want to just like drop the mic and walk off the stage. And so I, I would love to hear like your kind of your thoughts or questions or things that come up in your mind when we talk about the rhythm of gathering as God's people. Where, how is this hard for us? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. How do you handle situations where there's major theological differences, but still offering that like conducive environment where people still feel welcome to come and share without feeling judged or being told that they're wrong? <laughs> okay, so if I understand the question, you're gathering up Christians and believers. Some proclaim to be, but who am I to say that they aren't? But we just don't agree certain on certain theological truths. Yeah, and so I mean, part of that, it's hard for me to answer specifically without the context. But Homosexuality in the church. Thank that's you. a big one. Okay, good, yeah. Um, yeah that's, <laughs> that's an pretty, example of just one of yeah, many, but that, the biggest one. That that, that, that's pretty clear. I, I think that... Oh man, I'm gonna. This will be a can. Okay, so so one of the things I would say is that one of the reasons I believe Bible study, teaching, and and study of God's word theology should happen within the context of the local church is that so oftentimes, um, for for when it when you hmm, I've got to be really careful. Because I think that a lot of times when you have sort of eclectic parachurch-like structures that bring people together under this really, 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 really broad banner, okay, what happens is that the authority of the body of Christ is sort of minimalized. Because I think Christians, like, I mean, this is, I mean, I just think Christians in the local church should run hard after relationships with each other. And then outside the church, they should run hard after relationships with non-believers, okay? That doesn't mean that you don't have Christians, friends outside of this. That, that's not where I'm getting at. What I'm talking about is the people that you break bread with, the locus of your spiritual life, all those things. I think that that happens when there's an accountability structure to say, hey, here we are. I'm, I, I'm teaching this study. This issue has come up about homosexuality this is what my church teaches. This is what we believe. We all have unity around that. And so that's a really tough situation, Kelly. I, I don't even, I mean, like, are these people in church at all? Are they? Yeah. And so, it's, and so some, we just probably don't need to make the assumption that they're necessarily 
born-again Christians, okay? So, so in the sense that I know that sounds like really super-duper um, judgmental, and I didn't mean to get off in this, but I did, I did somehow. But I don't know if that helps. You know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really tough question, and without a little more context, it would be hard for me to unpack that, but I'd be glad to talk a little bit more. Okay, other questions? When you think about this rhythm of, of worship, rhythm of coming together, yeah, all the things that we, we, would, we want to assume is that it's under a unified theology. It's under a unified leadership. Um, that's, again, why I think things like, well, I'm going to worship God from my deer stand on Sunday morning, okay? Or I'm going to, me and the dudes are worshiping God at Starbucks. Or I'm worshiping God online. By the way, guys, that is like the, you know, Churches have internet campuses now. They're, they're proliferating because worship has been reduced down to this private individual experience when in God's word, it's not less than that, okay, but it's so much more. It's so much, it's a rhythm to be, to be cultivated among the people of God as a, as a community together. Okay, other questions? And Scott's looking at me like, I need time. Yeah, I'm going to give you time. Okay. Um, other questions? Uh, anything we talked about tonight at all? All right, Scott, I'm going to get Scott to come up here. And Debbie, let me pray for us. And then these guys are going to just tell us a few things going on in the life of the church. And then we're, then we're, going, to be, we're going to be done.